I am a, a pop music fan and have been for some time. And I do have a tendency to give my daughter a hard time about Ed Sheeran and the fact that he writes songs targeted directly at teenage girls. Um, it's a little bit better than One Direction, which I um, am usually calling No Direction to very loud eye rolls by her. But let's be honest, pop music has done this from the beginning, right? It's what the Beatles did. It's what Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett did before them. But here's the thing. So I am a child of the 1980s. And in the 1980s, there was this thing, this strange phenomenon called hair bands. And these were guys that had more product in their hair than any of the girls I went to high school with. And they had huge hair. And um, I know no one listens to rock music like that anymore. But in 1987, a song hit number one on the Hot 100 Billboard charts. That song was Here I Go Again by Whitesnake. And this is how that song opened. I don't know where I'm going, but I sure know where I've been. Hanging on the promises and the songs of yesterday, and I've made up my mind. I ain't wasting no more time. Here I go again. Here I go again. Though I keep searching for the answer, I never seem to find what I'm looking for. Can you tell that I kind of know this song? <laughs> oh, Lord, I, hope you, I pray you give me strength to carry on. Because I know what it means to walk alone along the lonely street of dreams. Here I go again on my own, going down the only road I've ever known. Like a drifter, I was born to walk alone. And I've made up my mind, I ain't wasting no more time. Now by this point in Acts, I feel like this could be Paul's theme song. It feels like we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And when I first read this passage and prepping for this, I was like, oh man, here I go again. How do I make this new or applicable? How do I make this somewhat interesting and not totally redundant for people who've heard this before? <coughs> but then the more I thought about it, a couple of thoughts came to my mind in, as I was thinking and, and, and meditating on this. And the first is, I have to constantly remind myself that if something keeps happening over and over and over again with slight variations and changes, but basically the same thing, and one of the writers of sacred scripture takes this much time and energy to keep writing it down, I probably ought to pay attention. So that was the first thought that came to mind. And the second, the, the more I read the specific circumstances of today's passage in Acts 22 and 23, the more I thought about Jesus' statement to his disciples that we are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And perhaps there's the name of a modern rock band for you. I know no one listens to straight up rock anymore unless they're old like me. But anyway, in Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples. Right? He's, he's been teaching them, they've been with him, and he sends them out to preach his message. And in chapter 10 of Matthew, verse 16 and following, this is what we read. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Does not sound like a great way to start 
a challenge to me, but okay. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but those who stand firm to the end will be saved. Verse 24, students are not above their teacher nor servants above their master. It is enough for students to be like their teacher and servants like their master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, much more the members of his household. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. It's practically the script for what we're going to see today in Acts 22 and 23. And as we look at Paul's situation today, I want those, those words of Jesus to echo in your mind. I want it to, as we think about the persecution that Paul is facing, as we think about the situations we face today, I want us to think about those words of Jesus in the back of our minds. And how does Paul live out that charge uh, that Jesus gave to the twelve? Because I think we're going to see that's exactly what he does today. So in Acts chapter 22, through uh, verse 22 through 2311, here is what we read of Paul's current circumstance. Remember, he has just spoken to the crowds and he has just said at the end of last week's passage that God has told him that he's going to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander, the tribune, ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion right there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. The commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul said. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. 
The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Then the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And and at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. And those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and, that, and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended up from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified before me about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Would you pray with me? Father, it has been a trying week. We have seen tragedy hit close to home. And it is easy to find ourselves in a place where we are discouraged. We have had family members uh, pass. We've seen horrific uh, crimes in just down the road. And sometimes we don't know where to go or what to do, and it feels like we're just doing the same thing over and over again. And I pray that you would help us this day to see how we are to face trying times and be wise as serpents and harmless as doves and it's in the name of your son Jesus Christ that we pray amen for the past two weeks we've been leading up to this showdown the sacrifice that Paul is willing to take and last week as Pastor Phil preached about selflessness and it's all coming to a head here (coughs) now And today Paul is facing the fury of those who think that they are utterly righteous and are yet opposed to the working of God. Paul is in danger for his life and we see chaos in a world desperately searching for order. Threats and misunderstandings and grandstanding and drama and Paul, the servant of God, in the midst of all of this swirling chaos and confusion 
we see him wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. First, let's look at this circumstance, this facing persecution. It feels like Paul is constantly here, right? And, and I feel like a broken record saying we don't face this. I, I read just the other day from Open Doors. Uh, the, this is what they said. The 2019 Open Doors World Watch List reveals disturbing revelations from the world's two most populous countries, India and China, which have seen a dramatic increase in the persecution against Christians. In India, Hindu nationalists fueled a crackdown on Christians and churches, promoting the widespread oppression of religious minorities. In some areas, this is translated to brutal violence against Hindus who have converted to Christianity. The situation in India is so volatile, and the religious mi minorities in particular face extremely dangerous situations with mobs of violence breaking out and demanding death sentences. The heightened power of the Chinese government is being wielded to remove any challenges to the absolute authority of President uh, Xi Jinping. I'm going to get that wrong. I know I did. Um, new regulations of government crackdowns have made open worship increasingly risky, particularly in certain regions of the country. Pastor Wang Yi's recent arrest, along with some 150 Christians, is a recent indicator of the expanding level of control and religious persecution. And they go on to give you some stats. One in every nine Christians in the world experiences high levels of persecution for their faith. One in every six African Christians experiences high levels of persecution for their faith. One in every three Asian Christians experiences high levels of persecution for their faith. North Korea tops the list for the 18th year in a row. And it's scary there for Christians. Algeria had the highest rate of year-over-year -year increase in persecution against Christians. The Russian Federation and Morocco are newcomers to this year's list. Islamic oppression fuels persecution in eight of the top ten countries in, on the 2019 Open Doors World Watch list. And that's just a snippet. And I think about our brothers and sisters around the world and what they face, and we get to come here. And it is in some ways, becoming more uncomfortable for us as U.S. Christians, but we don't face that. And we don't face what Paul faced. But I think it's really important to, for us here in the West to ask ourselves, what would be will, we be willing to face? Would we be willing to selflessly sacrifice on behalf of the faith that we claim? Paul does. And we see it directly here. But I want us to be very clear. Paul doesn't simply roll over and accept what's going on. And we're going to see this in our passage from a couple of different ways. Paul faced persecution no matter what form it took. And at the start of our passage, it comes from the crowd. And this is what we saw last week and at the beginning here, especially in verses 22 and 23. And then... In verses 24 and following, it comes from the very people who saved him. The commander of the Antonia Fortress orders him flogged to find out what on earth is going on. This is, so we, we start with the crowd, and then we get the top down, right? The authority figure. That's as top down as you could have gotten in Jerusalem. 
And finally, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council. And so this is sort of the bottom and the top combined, right, from the side. And what do we see? We see social persecution, we see state persecution, and we see religious persecution. All three of them in one passage. And in the first instance, Paul is basically being accused of treason against his people. In the second, as we saw last week, there is suspicion of insurrection. And certainly an intolerance for anything that might disrupt Roman order and the power of the state. And in the third instance, Paul is being accused of heresy, of betraying God. And all three of these things are still at work today, right? All are becoming more of a problem for us here today in our culture. Social pressure to conform to specific cultural norms. They can be on the left. Think about sexuality. They can be on the right. Think about the immigration arguments. There is a state pressure for us to conform. If you want to be in the public square, whether in business or public service, one Senator in a confirmation hearing not too long ago famously said, the dogma lives loudly within you. It wasn't a compliment. I must admit that my contrariness would have led me to say thank you. Um, And I've seen the t-shirt and I want one. Um, We've seen similar moves in Christian circles. Does your Christianity look the way that I want it to look? Are you opposed to the right things? Look, I grew up in a fundamentalist church. I went to a very conservative Christian college, and I saw that same spirit at work there. I see the same spirit at work in the liberal end of the spectrum as well in mainline denominations and what some would call progressive evangelicals. If you don't toe the line on the current values of openness and inclusion, then we're going to have none of you. We can see persecution come from lots of different angles and different ways. It can come in forms that we do not expect, and we have to be on guard. We have to face the the fact that we, too, are capable of being the people, not being persecuted, but also persecuting. And we have to see those things. But, but not only is it what form it takes, whether society or state or, or religious, it's also who brings it. See, there's three different groups of people who persecute Paul in our passage. And they, they kind of map onto those three forms. But we see it in the masses, and we see it in the magistrates, and we see it in the magisterium the social influencers and the state influencers and the sacred influencers. We can be persecuted by the masses. Read a Twitter feed. Read the comments on a message board or on Reddit. Yikes. It can get scary in a hurry. We can be persecuted by the state, whether it's a senator or the government of China and India. And we can be persecuted by the church. Leave our denomination and we'll take your building. Believe that, or question this, or be too friendly with them, and we will disfellowship you. And all of those things are realities. And all three of those groups also can use their influence and abilities for extreme good. And so it's not an either-or, it's not a this-is-all-terrible thing. Listen, Friday was a tragedy. 
in Aurora. I found out late, well, early yesterday morning that one of the people killed, Russell Beyer, was a classmate of mine. I graduated from high school with him. And already there are plans via Facebook from a class of 1990 group to donate money to his family. And that's pretty amazing to see what a crowd can do on a positive standpoint. Very few of these people are Christians, and they can do good. Sometimes the state does incredible things. At that same event, police officers immediately went into the line of fire, not knowing what was going on. Four of them immediately, two of them were shot. And they did it to save others. And for all the problems we can point out with the federal government, I too have been to the DMV. Our air is cleaner now than it was when I was a kid in the 70s. And I know this, if for no other reason than my parents have become avid bird watchers over, out their back window over the, the years. And I know for a fact that there are more birds in their backyard today than there were when I was a kid. It's just, that's the way it is. And my father, with the seven-point buck over the fireplace, is now feeding deer out of the backyard. I'm telling you, it's very strange. I don't know what the world is coming to. And it's the role of the church, the church's leadership, to protect orthodoxy, to shepherd the flock. And together, the church leadership has created things like the Nicene Creed, which distills what Christians believe in an amazing way. And we form denominations that can do great things and help many. So all of these things have the capability for good and evil, and we have to remember that. It's not just, oh, it's terrible, or oh, it's great, because we're involved, right? But no matter what the circumstance, and no matter what the source, Paul used the status that God had given him. He didn't roll over. And sometimes I think we think that turning the other cheek means that we don't stand up. And that's not what it means at all. It means that we do it in the right way when we do. Last week, Paul asked for and received permission to speak to the crowd. He used his fluency in Greek as a means to do so. And his learned cultured status allowed him to communicate the gospel. And his status as a Jew, spoke Aramaic to the crowd, let him both show his faithfulness to God as a Jew and his commitment to Christ. And today we see more of the same. First, as we saw, Paul is brought in, in verse 24 and following, into the Roman fortress. And he is going to be flogged. And Paul uses his Roman citizenship to stop an injustice. Because Roman citizens could not be flogged without a conviction. And Paul's citizenship, as we just saw, was more impressive than most. The tribune, the commander of the fortress of hundreds of men, had to buy his citizenship. Probably what he did, the way this worked, he paid a bribe to somebody who got his name on on a list that went before Caesar, and Caesar said, okay, they can be citizens. I like the way the NLT puts it. It says, he muttered, it cost me plenty, in verse 28. 
And that's probably exactly what he was doing. So Paul's citizenship was of higher status than the tribunes because he was born with it, which means that Paul's father must have been somebody important. And since the time of Augustus, yes, that Augustus from Luke chapter 2, it was against the law to bind or flog a Roman citizen. And that's what's about to happen, verse 25 says. They were stretching him out to flog him. Side note, this is probably the very same place where Jesus was scourged. And there's already one violation of Roman law going on, and there's about to be a second, and the centurion is understandably alarmed when he hears Paul. He's like, hold it. I don't want to be a part of something illegal. This could cost me my life. So he puts on the brakes. And Paul is somehow able to prove his citizenship. Roman citizens were supposed to carry a diploma. It was a small wooden uh, plaque that carried his citizenship information. And that stopped the beating and set up the next steps in Paul's journey toward Rome. The next thing we see is Paul uses his status the very next day when he confronts the Sanhedrin. We aren't clear how it is that the tribune was able to call such a meeting because he shouldn't have been able to. So probably this is something informal. The tribune is trying to get to the bottom. What gives? Why are these people so agitated? And the Sanhedrin is saying, we can get rid of a troublemaker. And so it's sort of a political, strange bedfellows kind of thing that ends up being pretty common. And because of Paul's Roman citizenship, the meeting is called and we're reminded of his Jewish status as well. In chapter 26, verse 10 of Acts, we're going to see in a few weeks that Paul is speaking before King Agrippa. And he makes it clear that he voted against the earliest Christians in the synagogue. That he had been given authority by the chief priests to put them in prison. And when we think back to Acts chapter 7 and his role in the stoning of Stephen, we remember he was a single, or he was a, uh, a central figure. And many scholars believe that there is a strong possibility that Paul himself had been a member of the Sanhedrin. Okay? And his statement about learning from Gamaliel in chapter 22 and his continued identification as a Pharisee make me think, I think he was. And Paul identifies the ruling council of the Sanhedrin as brothers. And even more so, he identifies specifically with the Pharisees. He knows there's a theological split in the group, and he identifies with one. In all of these situations, Paul uses his status in two different ways. He uses it first to defend himself, and second to further the gospel. This is not a one or the other scenario. For Paul, it's consistent and constant that he does both. And that's an important reminder for us. All too often today, we do this thing where we, we have this sacred-secular split. The spiritual is internal and private, and the secular is the real world. And it's a common Western mindset. It's one that non-Christians and Christians alike tend to have in our world. And the problem is it doesn't work. We are physical and spiritual beings. And some of the most heated cultural debates that we see today are at root moral issues, spiritual things. And why do more and more people identify today as spiritual but not religious? 
I think it's because deep down we all know that we can't separate the spiritual from the, wor- the lives that we live. But really, we would like to be free to choose what we want and not to have some religious something dictate to us what we can feel or believe. And the reality is we know that way of thinking ultimately falls. And that's what Paul is confronting here. He shows us in the way that he lives that these two things, the state and the church, if you will, are not so separate as sometimes we would like to think because they're dealing with whole people. So the challenge that Paul faces, the challenge that we face, is how do we follow in the footsteps of Jesus? How do we live out that Matthew 10 challenge? And today we talk a lot about identity, how we define identity, identity politics. I am fill in the blank. And last week, Paul clearly identified himself as a Jew and showed his credentials. Today, he identified, or then he identified with the Gentiles and said, I am going to the Gentiles. And today, we see Paul identify as a Roman citizen, as a member of the Sanhedrin and a Pharisee. And all throughout this, he identifies himself first and foremost as what? A follower of Jesus Christ. We have seen that from the very point of his conversion onto this point today. Paul's identity is first and foremost built upon Christ. And all of those other identities that he has, and they are real and they are part of his life, they only matter in light of what he is in Christ. That means whatever Paul does, whatever he says, must be through, viewed through the lens of Jesus. And for a first century Jew, a Pharisee no less, this means that you are to be like the one you follow. Following in his footsteps, that Matthew 10 passage that we saw is exactly what Paul does. And I see five quick ways that he does this in what we see today. First, he has a firm foundation of a clear conscience before God. None of what Paul has done up to this point matters if he's doing it solely out of self-interest. In chapter 23, verse 1, Paul says that he has fulfilled his duty to God in all good conscience. He is claiming that as a citizen of God, of God's kingdom, he is blameless. (coughs) Excuse me. According to one commentator I read, the phrase he uses doesn't just mean he was pious. It described the whole conduct of his life. And additionally, he says, before God, not before the law. You know what he's doing? In front of the Sanhedrin, he's saying, I am holding myself to a higher standard than you do. Now, let's be clear. Paul is not saying that he is sinless. He is saying he's leading a blameless kind of a life. He is living a life toward and for God, which puts God first. And that's what following Jesus means. And we can say all the right things and we can do all the right things. Remember who he's talking to. But if it doesn't come from that foundation, it's worthless. Second, Paul finds common ground. He finds common ground throughout this passage. We often talk about common ground when we talk about evangelism. I've heard it compared to being on a first date. You don't start by talking about the things you don't have in common. Right? You start with the things you do have in common. But Paul is doing something more here. Because at every turn, 
he's finding common ground with people who have no interest in hearing his message, who are oppressing him. He finds common ground with the tribune who is going to have him flogged. He finds common ground with the Sanhedrin in general and the Pharisees specifically. But notice the way that he does it. This is where the wise as serpent, harmless as doves part comes in. Paul is not dumb. He knows how precarious his situation is. And when the Romans first intervene, he doesn't immediately identify with them or communicate everything about himself. Why? Because the mob are members of his people. People he cares about. People he wants to come to Christ. And if he too quickly identifies with the Romans, what will they do? Write him off. Then, when he needs to try again, when the tribune thinks he has a famous Egyptian insurrectionist who had disappeared after a failed revolt, Paul makes it clear, I'm not who you think I am. And I believe that Paul was hoping to calm things down there and that the, it would be the end of the situation. Didn't happen that way. Next, things almost blow up again, and the tribune again does something drastic. He's about ready to flog him, and Paul plays his trump card. I am a Roman citizen, and not just any Roman citizen. And that gets Paul out of immediate danger. And it sets up the next stage where he goes before the Sanhedrin, and he immediately creates common ground. Brothers, he says. And then when things start to go south again in verse 6, he identifies specifically with the Pharisees. And we're going to get to that more in a minute. In every case, finding common ground served two purposes. First, he's defending himself. He's scrambling for his life and his freedom. And second, and more importantly, he is using common ground to further communicate who he is to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who don't know Jesus. He has spoken clearly to the crowd, and the Romans have heard him. And chances are, a lot of those members of the Sanhedrin have heard him. And it's true that in today's passage, he doesn't clearly communicate the gospel. But evangelism is far more than a single statement. It's far more than a turn or burn presentation to someone. And finding common ground means Paul has the opportunity to keep having conversations. Both to defend himself and to further the gospel. And that is something that we need to take to heart today in the way that we approach communicating with the culture around us. Third, he speaks boldly. Paul is no shrinking violet. He is more than willing to speak boldly, right? We've seen this over and over again. <clears throat> he, like Jesus, was willing to speak truth to power. Bold enough to get the tribune to let him speak to the crowd and boldly, bold enough to proclaim his rights and bold enough to address the Sanhedrin. But those aren't really the boldest things. When Paul declares himself of clear conscience before God, the high priest orders Paul to be slapped in the face. It's a big deal. Later tradition, Jewish tradition, would say that the only reason you could strike a fellow Jew was to defend God's honor. And the mob had said Paul was teaching apostasy against Judaism. 
which would, of course, that, that Paul's claim to be living with a clean conscience before God was a lie. And so, the high priest orders him slapped. And Paul is having none of it. He knows the score, and he comes back with what sounds like, to me, probably was an angry blast. But it's more than just anger and defense. Paul is echoing the scriptures when he, when he calls, he, when he says, God will strike you, you whitewash, while you sit there and judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. He's echoing scriptures, making it clear, I know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm as learned as you, and I am more faithfully following the law than you are. There's at least three scriptural allusions going on here. When he says God will strike you, it's probably a reference to God cursing those who do not faithfully carry out the law. And we see this in uh, Deuteronomy, I believe it's chapter 8, and specifically verse 22, where it specifically mentions God striking those who don't follow it with uh, a wasting disease. When he uses the phrase whitewash wall, it's sort of reminiscent of Jesus' statement about whitewash tombs. But it also is an insult that recalls Ezekiel 13. This is like, I think that either Luke or Paul was studying Ezekiel a lot. Because we've seen over the course of the last several weeks that there's quite a few allusions. And this is what Ezekiel 13 um, verses 10 to 16 says. Because I think that this, this is exactly what everyone in that room would have heard when he said that. Because they lead my people astray, he's talking about false prophets here, saying peace when there is no peace. And because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash that it is going to fall. Rain will, be, will come in torrents and I will send hailstones hurtling down and violent winds will burst forth. When the wall collapses, will people not ask you, where is the whitewash you covered it with? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. In my wrath, I will unleash a violent wind. In my anger, hailstones and torrents of rain will fall with destructive fury. And I will tear down the wall you have covered with whitewash and will level it to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you will be destroyed in it. And you will know that I am the Lord. So I will pour out my wrath against the wall and against those who covered it with whitewash. I will say to you, the wall is gone, and so are those who whitewashed it. Those prophets of Israel who prophesied to Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Sovereign Lord. That's what the Sanhedrin heard Paul saying they were, specifically the high priest. And then finally, Paul is echoing Leviticus 19.15, where he says, do not pervert, where the law says, do not pervert justice. And Paul is accusing the high priest of just that. And when Paul is confronted about insulting the high priest, you know what he does? He apologizes. Because he says respect is due to the leaders and they are correct in calling him on it. Being bold does not mean being insulting. And too often we confuse one for the other. And we ought not do that. But I also think Paul's doing something else here. I think he's getting in a bit of a dig. Scholars are divided 
on exactly what's going on here, but many think that this response is tinged with sarcasm. Chances are this is an informal meeting. So maybe the high priest is not in his formal garb. Maybe he's in the background. And perhaps Paul didn't know him by sight because it's been about two decades at this point. If Paul is converted in 34 and this is about 56, it's been over 20 years since he'd been a member an active member of the Sanhedrin. But maybe his eyes were bad. But likely, what he's saying here is, how could the high priest flout the law? How could I expect to think this guy's the high priest when he's saying to do this? And I think it's a bit of a dig. In any case, throughout this episode, Paul is speaking boldly within the parameters of the setting he's in, and he respects those parameters. But things aren't going well, and what happens next is at once both surprising and brilliant. He seizes the opportunity the situation presents. Most politicians are masters at reading the room, right? And that's exactly what Paul does here. He does it throughout the passage on finding common ground, but look what happens here. He's about to be flogged. He seizes on the fear of not following the Roman law, and it works. And he's in a pickle in front of the Sanhedrin. And what does he do? He knows there's a theological division. He knows the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection and the Pharisees do. He knows they don't like or agree with one another. And they're only working together because they want to get rid of him. And so Paul applies pressure to the weak spot. Just like pressure in a volcano builds and finds the weak spot and blows. Guys, I'm a Pharisee just like you. And you know what this is really about? It's about resurrection. And those guys don't want to hear about it. And boom. It explodes. And part of me, as I thought about this, said, come on, Paul. You're you're stretching things a bit. This is a little bit of a stretch. But he's really not wrong. It is about the hope of the resurrection. Not the way the Pharisees see it exactly, but there's a reason why Jesus all the time was arguing with the Pharisees and rarely with the Sadducees. You know why? Because Jesus was largely in the Pharisees' theological camp. Because they had it more right than they had it wrong. Finally, in in this, we need to remember that that Paul is working God is working in all circumstances, and that's crucial. When persecution comes, no matter the stripe or the the source, it's easy to get down and to have a pity party, to forget that God is still working. And Jesus always saw God at work in ways that we often miss. We we remember the, the blind man, and the disciples say, why? Why is he blind? His fault, his parents' fault. Jesus says, no, it's for God's glory. And in this entire episode, throughout all of this, we see God at work, preserving Paul for his mission. Paul knows what's coming. He's been told that he will be Jesus' witness before kings and governors, and that's not happened yet. And in the midst of persecution, Paul is being propelled forward by God for his glory and the completion of the task that he's been given. And the irony is that God is using the Romans to keep Paul safe from his own people to get the job done that God wants. And we see this very clearly and very quickly in the climax. And this will only take a moment. You see, 
Paul is fortified by God for the future. In verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul, you ain't seen nothing yet. Three things quickly. One, God is still there. It's easy to get down and to feel abandoned, and this entire episode reminds us God is still there. In the middle of the night, no doubt in a prison cell of the occupying army, God, Jesus himself, stands near to Paul and speaks to him. And that's pretty amazing. And that's who God is, always. Second, God is still encouraging. God doesn't simply stand there. He encourages Paul, quite literally. This is what God's presence does, even when he doesn't seem to be there, or there doesn't seem to be any earthly way forward. And finally, God's commission is still at work. Not only has God been at work through what has happened, he is still working and will be working. Paul, you've testified to me about me in Jerusalem. Rome is next. From the leaders of my people to the leaders of the mightiest empire in the world, I've got you exactly where I need you to be. And notice it's not comfortable. It's not cushy, but it's right in the center of God's plan. And God takes the pains of life, the seemingly unavoidable evil, and turns them to his will. We often don't see it. We don't know how, but he does. The easy thing when faced with opposition, when faced with persecution, is to get angry, to get afraid. When we do those things, we forget what Jesus has done for us, what he calls us to do. He says we are to be sheep among wolves, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And Jesus tells us not to be afraid in Matthew 10. He also says in verses 38 and 39 of Matthew 10, this with this I close. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Paul lived that way. And that's the way that I want to live. And I hope you do too. And I hope as the days go by that we will see that more than ever. We will be able to to face the persecution we, we face, wise as serpents and harmless as doves.